The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe. And that is certainly our hope as we, as we join uh, the great apostle who wrote the Gospel of John under the inspiration of the Spirit. So that you may believe our study of the Gospel of John, that you may believe if you've never come to faith in Christ, our hope is that this study from the Word of God will, will gently but thoroughly drive home to your heart that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he has said he has done for the salvation of souls. If you are a follower of Christ already, may you be encouraged as I have been by our study of this Gospel. We have said that this middle section, in between the, the sort of preamble and introduction and ultimately the, the sort of passion narrative of the last week of Christ's ministry, this middle section that deals with the ministry of Jesus is organized by John around seven miraculous signposts. It also is organized around a series of I am statements. We've not gotten into those yet, but these signposts are, are miracles that point to the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are, they are like directional signs, and they, they point us to Jesus. The first, back in chapter two, was the turning of water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That miracle is a miracle of creating something out of nothing. Jesus can create something out of nothing. Only God can create something out of nothing. Therefore, Jesus is God. The second, the long-distance healing of the nobleman's son, also in Cana of Galilee. Uh, a miracle that took place far from where Jesus was as Jesus had a conversation with the man who was begging for the miracle for his son. That miracle proves that Jesus is the master over time and space. Only God has mastery over time and space. Therefore, Jesus is God. The third of these signpost miracles back in chapter five was the healing of the lame man who had for 38 years been there at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. Jesus, with 38 years to work with, timed this miracle so that it occurred on the Sabbath day to demonstrate that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. Only God is Lord over the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is God. This miracle to which we come this morning in John chapter six, <clears throat> the first 15 verses, is a miracle of superabundant provision. Only God is the provision, the sustainer of life. Jesus is provision and the sustainer of life. Therefore, Jesus is God. Come with me to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, not the populated west side, 
<coughs> but the more desolate east side. And join me for a miracle that I've called the impossible feast. The first two words of John chapter six are after this. That tells us that the events of John chapter six happen after the events of John chapter five. Doesn't tell us how long after. But in chapter six, verse four, it tells us that it's the Passover. That means that if the feast alluded to back in chapter five was also the Passover, and I believe it was, that a year has elapsed between John, the events of John five and the events of John six. Now during that year, we have, which is extensively chronicled in the other gospels, Jesus' popularity with the crowd has been growing. Verse two of chapter six gives us a hint that, that that growth in popularity was not for the best of reasons. And with this Passover, John six, we begin the last year of Jesus's public ministry. John does not divide his chapters evenly chronologically. John six, we come into the last year of what has been a up to this point, about two and a half years of public ministry. Now, at John 6, we enter the last year. At John 12, by the way, we enter the last week of his public ministry, and at John 13, the last night, with many more chapters to go. In fact, that last night of teaching with Jesus and his disciples covers John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and a little bit into 18. So again, John's not being even with his use of time, but we now round the corner into this last year of Jesus' public ministry, the impossible feast. I'm gonna read the passage as we go. Uh, let me just, again, for context, first few verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now these signposts were, were not intended to generate a large popular following for shallow reasons, but that's exactly what has happened. Let's, let's go and see what he's gonna do next. He's doing some amazing and interesting things. Let's go see what he's gonna do next. These signposts are meant to break the heart of a sinner and cause that sinner to cry out to a savior for salvation point out that Jesus is who he says he is, son of God and savior of the world. But the crowd is interested in seeing just the next spectacular feat. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's how we can nail this down. The next Passover in sequence will be the Passover weekend that Jesus dies on the cross. Roman numeral one on your outline. By the way, this is the only miracle, and except for the resurrection, that is, that is covered and chronicled in all four gospels. This is the only one. We've already talked about, John wrote his gospel some decades after the earlier gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have, have told of this miraculous feeding. As John comes along years later, he's going to add 
some detail that the others don't add. And particularly, he's going to, he's going to show us a, the roles played by three different individuals. None of these individuals are mentioned in the other Gospels, specifically. They're all three mentioned here. The first we encounter is Philip, one of the 12. We see in Philip the logic, Roman 1, and they test for Philip. Verses five, six, and seven. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that, so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Remember we've said this before. When Jesus asks one of his disciples a question, it's not Jesus looking for information he cannot otherwise get. Is Jesus doing something else? Here John tells us he's testing Philip. Philip answered him. Okay, let me see. I'm adding this, but this is what had to have happened. Uh, 5,000 men in this crowd. That's probably 15 to 18,000 people. A couple of bites of bread each. That's going to be a lot of bread times. The price of bread. 200 denarii. 200 days wages worth of bread wouldn't be enough even for each of them to get a little. Philip is given a test. Letter A on your outline. Philip, can you see reality? Can you see reality? We talked about that a little bit last week. This this madness of our current age where not, not only have we taught ourselves to believe foolishly that perception is reality. Remember I told you, wash your mouth out with soap if you ever catch yourself saying that. Because if perception is reality, then there's no such thing as delusionalism, right? Because I'm not delusional. I've just got my own reality working over here. If my perception is reality. So glad all 10,000 of you have come this morning. That's how Baptist pastors' perception is reality. Yeah. Philip, can you, can you see what we've got here? We've got a social cultural obligation because we have drawn a crowd. We didn't mean to draw this big a crowd, but we did. We've drawn a great big crowd at dinner time. Do you see the reality? We've got a social cultural obligation to feed these folks. Letter B, can you evaluate the situation? Can you do the math? Well, I, I filled it in with a little micro drama up here, but evidently he could. He was able to calculate number of people, loaves per person, Price per loaf, and ta-da! His, his math is solid. His reasoning and perception are on track. So I say, congratulations, Philip, you passed. However, you passed the wrong test. You simply passed the wrong test. Because any Pagan, any complete and total unbeliever, any atheist can count the people, calculate the bread, 
No people over loaves times cost per loaf equals some amount of bread per person done. So okay, you can, you, you can do math. I want to suggest some different questions, Philip. These are not on your outline, but here they come. How about this question? Can you remember who I am? You've been following me now for, for almost two years. You've seen everything I've done and heard everything I've said. <clears throat> and you're going to come to me and tell me about a lack of sufficiency? You're going to come to me and describe a problem as though you think it's beyond me to solve it? Do you even know whom you are serving? Second, Peter, can you remember where does sufficiency come from? Who is providing every need? You know what? By and large, we're a room full of Baptists. Now, if you never meant to be a Baptist and you've joined this church, I suppose I've got bad news for you. <laughs> I know us. I love us. And I know it, there's no way a room full of Baptists at 1140, most of you have made the plan for lunch today. You have not left that oh-so-critical matter open. You've run to the grocery store, you've negotiated the restaurant, you've done whatever it takes to put the lunch plan together. Good for you. I hope you have not forgotten that whatever work you've done, whatever grocery store run you've done, whatever restaurant you've talked about, your next meal is coming from Jesus or you won't have it. Your next breath is coming from Jesus or you won't have it. Your next heartbeat, which by now has happened, was a gift from Jesus or it wouldn't have happened. Philip, don't you come telling Jesus that there's no way to do this. Don't you come tell Jesus about a lack of sufficiency. Your math is good. Your faith is in the tank. Can you get beyond thinking about a little? In addition to failing his faith, his faith failing, Philip postulates, look, all we could give him even then would be a bite or two. Even if we made moves we can't make toward feeding them, we'd still send them away basically hungry there wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip's logic. Roman numeral two. The lad. A test for Andrew. These are the other two people that are not mentioned specifically in the other three gospels. All, all my life, I've heard the story of the little boy and his loaves and fishes. And so... Reading, getting ready for this morning, I, I read that, that John is the only gospel that mentions. The other gospels mention the loaves and fishes, but John is the only gospel that mentions the little boy. And I said, uh, uh. But I checked and he really is. Only John talks about this little guy. 
The disciples, according to the other gospels, Jesus said, all right, go see what we have. Since we, since we Philip, don't have enough, let's, let's go see what we do have. Fan out, see what we've got. And at the end of that, Andrew comes back, who is also not named in the other gospels, one of the 12, not named in this moment in the other gospels. Andrew comes back and says, I, I, I got a happy meal. What we don't have is the conversation between Andrew and this little boy. I kind of wish we did. God chose to leave it out, and I'm at peace with that. But I wish we had the conversation where Andrew said, hi, little guy. What you, what you got there? Five breadsticks and a couple of fish. What an opportunity for that little boy to say, this is mine. My mommy gave this to me and you can't have it. And Andrew says to the little boy, look, I don't get it either. But Jesus, Jesus wants to talk to you about your, uh, your happy meal. That little boy didn't have a backup happy meal. He didn't have a plan B to eat himself. It was all that he had. We see what happens when we read verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here. And by the way, that word is specifically a little boy. It's, it's, it's paideon, from which comes our English word, the same root, pediatrics or, or a pediatrician. It means a little, little one. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Three things I see there. First, a small person. A small person. I, I just love that. You know, I, I've never seen anybody who was too small for Jesus to use. Seen a number of people who are too big for Jesus to use. I think the kingdom has got a whole lot of people who've gotten so big, they're beginning to limit their usefulness. Jesus never said, unless you come to me with the faith of a celebrity, you'll have little value in the kingdom. You know, he never said that. Faith of a little child. A little boy. Second, a little gift. A little gift. Now, I may be missing something. It's difficult to state an affirmative in, 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 in the negative when you say something is the only occurrence. But the only, the only um, specific narrative in the New Testament that I remember that is a narrative about big giving, in the book of Acts, Barnabas early in the days of the church, made a big gift. He sold some noteworthy real estate holdings and he openly brought the proceeds of that gift and put it at the apostles' feet in the early days of the church. Knowing Barnabas, as we do, as his story is told throughout the, the rest of the book of Acts, this is not a showman. He's not, he's not, he may be doing this to encourage others, but to him it's just not a big deal. It's Barnabas being Barnabas. In the back of the room, there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira they watch the church celebrate Barnabas' gift. And they say to each other, let's get some of that. Yeah, but I don't want to give like he gave. That's the beauty of it. We don't have to give like he gave. We just have to look like we give 
like he gave. And if you read the story, they both left church in zip-up body bags. They got struck dead in church for faking their gift. So bottom line, the only big giving story I can think of in the New Testament ends up with people dead in church. (laughs) Jesus seems to love little gifts. I put this happy meal alongside the widow's mite as as a a, a not, not huge gift, but an all they had gift. See, again, the little boy didn't have a backup. This little boy, this is how he's going to eat. And I know little boys, he's hungry. And this is all. It's just a little gift. Third thing, just a little question. I I, I love Andrew's concluding Question. What, 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 what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Now, it's a question. But before I indict that question, remember, it's not Philip's statement. Philip's statement is, ain't nothing we can do. That's Philip's statement. We're stuck. There's no solution. That's failure. I don't mind Andrew's question. Okay, Lord, we got 15, 18,000 people in a happy meal. I think, I think Andrew gets it. Lord, it's, it's, it's time for you to be you. If these people are going to eat, which is an obligation of ours, this is going to be good. What is this for so many people, this little lunch? Roman numeral three, the Lord, and a test for the disciples. Verses 10 through 15, Jesus said to him, have the people sit down. Uh, uh, Jesus, you, you do know that we're already pretty well obligated to feed them and there's no way for us to do so and if you tell them to have a seat that's what you do when dinner is served and I ain't seeing no dinner this is a test for the disciples their faith may have failed but at least their obedience didn't they got out and they started having the people be seated have the people be Sitting, sitting down. Now, there was much grass in the place. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. Or he maketh me have a seat on the green grass and watch what he's about to do. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, that's just the men. The women and children also sat down which probably puts us closer to 15 to 18,000 people as a reasonable minimum. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish. The other gospels make it clear that his distribution mechanism was the disciples. He said, all right, scatter among the people with what I'm giving you and everybody eats. 
as much as they wanted, end of verse 11. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Oh, the ink that has been spilled about these 12 baskets. Oh, it, it, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and God's eschatological fulfillment. Oh, come on. How many disciples were there serving? Each one had a basket. How many baskets is that? Ain't that deep. It's lunch tomorrow. It's lunch for tomorrow. And you, you know, notice it doesn't say that they gathered up any leftover fish. Do you want to eat day-old fish without refrigeration? There wasn't any leftover fish. Tomorrow's fish will come tomorrow. We got the bread, though. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, there's some questions I believe that, that, that raises. First question. And there's, there's a fair number of us, but it's few enough we can treat this like family. Let's not be rhetorical, you tell me. Why in the world did he take that little boy's lunch? Did he need something to start with? No, we're clear on that, right? He didn't need anything to start with. He, he is creation from nothing. So why? Why did he take that little boy's lunch? Always to glorify God. That's a great answer, but you're cheating a little bit because of the why of everything he does is to glorify himself. So, so good answer, good answer, but not quite focused. Let me try this. Do you suppose that little boy ever forgot that day? Do you suppose that little boy told the story for the rest of his life? I got in on it. I don't think that little boy told a story that there was enough in that box to feed 18,000 people. I think that little boy told a story of, all I know is that Jesus called on what I had. And Jesus took what I had and it wasn't all that much. And I wish you could have been there that day to see what Jesus did when little old me with no backup plan, took everything that I had that day, which wasn't much, and said, sure, Jesus, if you want to do it, let me in. I'll, I'll get in. Here's my happy meal. I think he enlisted him because he enlists people and offers us. It's, it's true every time we give. Second, why produce so much? I mean, Philip was talking about 200 denarii and everybody gets a bite. We spend 200 days, days wages and truth be told, people still go home hungry. Well, the Lord was having none of it. They got as much as they wanted, according to verse 11. They ate their fill, according to verse 12. Why in the world so much? I tell you, I think he's, he's painting a picture of, of the sufficiency of his work. I'm so glad when Jesus went to the cross, he did not 
almost accomplished my salvation. Amen. He did not accomplish 50%, 75%, 99.5%. I'm so glad when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't get almost everything forgiven. For those who will turn from their sin and call on him by faith. Take your Bible and turn, if you will, to Hebrews 10. Abundance. Completeness. What the situation calls for. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. If this has not yet come to, if you've been around the New Testament much and this has not come to be one of your favorite paragraphs, get your highlighter ready. And every priest, speaking to the Hebrew Old Testament sacrificial system, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Footnote, it's just not enough. It's just every day the same thing over and over again. It's just not enough. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time. If you don't believe in eternal security, I honestly don't know what Bible you're reading. By his single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, those who know him at all. Sufficiency. You ain't got to worry about leaving the impossible feast and not having had enough. You don't have to worry about following Jesus and will it be enough. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith. His sacrifice on the cross is enough and his resurrection from the grave proves it. He didn't send anybody away that day with their need unmet. And he's not going to send away anybody who repent of their sin and trust him by faith with their forgiveness partially done. Why enlist the disciples? Why enlist the disciples? Well, same reason. Same reason. You guys are going to get in on a miraculous event. You guys are going to get to tell the story of being, hang on, being the delivery system for the amazing thing I have done. Does that sound familiar? Followers of Christ enlisted to be the delivery system for the amazing thing that he has done. So are you, my believing friend. You and I as his ambassadors, as his witnesses, as his messengers, we are the delivery system for the good news of what he's accomplished by his sacrifice on the cross. We are the truth tellers, the message bearers. 
He enlists the disciples to deliver the benefit of what he's done because he always enlists his people to deliver the glorious news of what he has done. So where do we end up? Roman number four, the lessons. What are some key takeaway points? Sometimes we, we are able to reduce a sermon to a big idea. Well, I lack discipline. I've got four big ideas to conclude with. I think these are all to be seen in this text. Letter A, don't stop at the calculations. Don't you stop at the calculations. I admire people who can do good math. I've worked around churches and math most of my career. Praise God for people who can do the math, but don't you, look, another, one, another thing to wash your mouth out with soap over. Don't you ever call the result of your calculations the real world. How dare you leave the creator of that world out of your real world? The real world is Jesus. Don't stop at calculation. Faith. Second takeaway. Whatever you have, bring it to Jesus. Maybe if it's all you have, bring it to Jesus. Maybe it's just a happy meal. Don't you hold out on Jesus. The issue with the widow's might and this boy's gift is not the smallness of the gift. The smallness of the gift is to demonstrate the miraculous character of Jesus' moving. The point is, it was everything. The little boy had no backup lunch. Whatever you have, bring it to Jesus and watch what he does with it. Let her see, get out in the crowd ready to serve in Jesus' name. Get out there in the crowd and deliver to needy mankind what Jesus has done. And by the way, he'll take care of you too while you do so. You will not tell other people how they can be filled and then you yourself go home hungry. You know what? I have down the years talked with people who, who have had various doubts and struggles with the issue of, of their own security and their own salvation. But it's never been after somebody led somebody to Jesus. I've never sat down when somebody led somebody to Jesus on Saturday morning. I've never had to sit down on Saturday afternoon with them doubting their own salvation. Get in on the delivery system. That'll build your confidence in what he's delivered to you. I know that's simplistic, but my nearly 40 years of observation, it rings true. Get out there with your basket. And then finally, letter D, be prepared because he is going to become king. This crowd wanted him to be their, their sort of messianic superman that would topple Roman dominion. Sort of the master magician. Jesus was having none of it. Oh, he's king. And he one day will visibly reign, but he'll do it in his timing and on his terms. You know what? He's in charge of your eternity. He's king. He is in charge of your eternity today. You don't need to make him Lord. He already is, and he didn't have to ask you. The issue is, shall you align with him as your king? Will you turn from your sin and trust him by faith? These signs we keep looking at point to the reality 
of the God who became man, laid down his life for our sin, and now offers everyone who will salvation. It's there if you'll take it by turning from your sin and trusting him by faith.